Let's be friends. I have a business coach and she asked me the other day, you know, who could you call at 3 a.m.? And Tony was one of my first answers. I know that I could call him at 3 a.m. if I had something going on and he would pick up the phone and he would help. For a booty call or for business? Jeez, <laughs> for business. <laughs> so we did just the smartest thing you can possibly do when you're about ready to start a business. We built a brand new house. I mean, I think the most important thing that you can do if you want to start your own business is to no greater motivator to become profitable than bringing home a child into a house where five adults are living and between you, you all have $67. Well, I'm Lacey Starling, and I am the president and fearless leader of Legion Logistics, and we are located in Florence, Kentucky, which is just outside Cincinnati. So we're part of the Cincinnati metro area. Mm -hmm. And I think when we started, you were asking what makes a good guess or a good story. And I'm like, if they have an interesting hook or something <laughs> that's different from everybody else. And I think you had something that was a little bit different, make your work situation a little bit interesting. Yes. So I run Legion with my ex-husband. We were married when we started the business back in 2009 and we got divorced in 2012. And we've been running the company as equal partners since then and co-parenting our daughter, who's now seven and a half. And we still live in the same neighborhood and work together every single day. So it's an unusual situation, but one that we have really made work for us. And do you live in the same house? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Good Lord, same no. Neighborhood, so yeah, thinking. same neighborhood. No. When we split up, he stayed in the house that we had, but I didn't want my daughter to be too far away from either of us. And our neighborhood was still developing. So I was able to build a house on the other side of the neighborhood. So we can't see each other's houses or anything like that, but it will be very easy for her when she's a little bit older to walk back and forth if she wants to, or we can stop by and see her little brother at her dad's house. It makes it a lot easier for us to do the logistics of co-parenting. Well, yeah, obviously a, a different situation and hopefully we can dive into that a little bit later, but why don't you tell us first, what is like logistics? If no one has an <laughs> idea what that is, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the company. So logistics is one of those industries that covers so many different things, logistics and supply chain. And our little corner of it is that when companies need freight moved, they call us and then we find the trucks to help them move that freight. So we don't own the trucks. We don't own the freight. We broker in the middle. So it's just like a mortgage broker or a stock broker. We're connecting our customers with truck drivers and trucking companies to help them get their freight moved around the country. Everything from watermelons to tanks. We have a wide variety of different customers. That's just one tiny slice of a huge industry in the United States. And especially because the United States is such a large country, everything has to be shipped around and everything that we buy or eat or see in stores, unless you're getting it at a farmer's market and it is sort of a hyper-local situation, everything had to go on a truck at some point. That's our piece of it, is that we're helping those products that are grown or manufactured or assembled here get from that point in the process to the retail location where it's going to be sold. You were saying that there's a lot of different pieces of the pie here. Could you easily divvy that up for us so we get a better thought behind it? Wow, it is enormous. So when you think about supply chain, 
companies like Procter and Gamble. So P&G is headquartered here in Cincinnati and they make everything, toothpaste, diapers, personal care products, the whole bit. They have a whole division of their company that is supply chain. And that includes everything from bringing in raw materials to, you know, shipping them out to assembling, et cetera. So it's a very disparate industry. And so to put a specific number on the whole industry would be very difficult. However, freight, trucking, transportation is a $187 billion industry in the United States, just that one little piece of it. So, I mean, it's massive. And then if you think about not just trucking, but the rest of freight too, you're pushing $600 billion annually in spend on all of that. It's really big. And brokers in general, logistics brokers like ourselves, the largest ones are one or $2 billion companies. So we're all taking very small bites of this huge pie. It means that there's a lot of room for growth too, though. So for a company like mine that did 30 million in sales last year, we know that there's a whole lot more pie that we could get by capturing customers. So that's always what we think about when we think about growth. How many employees do you have? And can you tell us, are you only located in Kentucky? Yes. So we have 30 employees right now and our headquarters, yeah, we're in Kentucky. We have one salesperson who lives in Colorado. She started to work with us five years ago and she initially lived here in the greater Cincinnati region. But two years ago, she came to us and she said, look, I need a lifestyle change. She had lived in Colorado before and just felt healthier physically when she was out there and mentally. And she said, you know, I've built my business. Would you guys be okay if I worked from home out in Colorado? And we said, absolutely, let's give it a shot. So we've been doing that for two years. And I respect the fact that she came to us with that concern and knew that she would be happier and healthier in a different environment. Yeah. Is that because weed's not legal in Ohio? (laughs) I think that might have something to do with it. She would never cop to that, but I think that might have something to do with it. Fresh mountain air and weed. I think that's what it is. You're saying about 30 employees. So what's like a breakdown of like the different positions in a logistics company for a company your size? I consider us a sales organization. And when I think about our company and the way that we're structured and how we do strategy, we are a sales organization. On the sales floor, fully half of our employees and all of our interns are in the sales function. They're either sales or they're sales assistants or they're sales interns, which we get from the local universities. And then the rest of it is divided up among our support staff. So we have four people in accounting, they're processing invoices. We have two people who are doing carrier relationship management. When trucking companies want to get set up with us, there's a compliance process that they have to follow. So they're processing all of that. We have designed and developed our own internal enterprise management software system, which is kind of unusual in the industry. We have two IT folks, one programmer and one sort of guy who helps when you can't boot your computer up. And then assorted other administrative and marketing folks, and then Tony and myself. And then say if I'm an intern or like early sales rep that I just joined your company, what am I doing in order to make those sales happen? Like who am I calling on to make money for you? And so I make money too. We mostly have our folks focus on mid-market companies. So 10 to 50 million around that range when they're first starting, because those are companies that are going to be large enough that they're shipping a considerable amount of freight, but small enough that they make decisions quickly. Because that's the key, right? To have that quick turnaround on a sales decision. They're reaching out to transportation managers, VPs of transportation, sometimes a supply chain manager. Sometimes it could be just a guy on the dock who's responsible for, like, especially with watermelon farmers, right? We work with a lot of those. 
there's just a guy on the dock who's responsible for getting the watermelons off the dock before they rot. <laughs> you know, that's the thing about produce sales. If you don't sell it, you smell it. And with perishables, it's just getting product moving as quickly as possible. So there's a whole gamut of people that you talk to, but they're all dealing with how to get product from production to retail as quickly as possible. Even asking these questions, I keep my mind keeps expanding on how many things you could go into, right? <laughs> yes. Because I'm like, okay, so, and you were just saying you target 10 to 50 million. It's like, I can already visualize how many gamuts and different companies that work with different size companies. And it sounds like at least the produce thing makes sense because they're incentivized to get something done quick. Yes. As far as the ones you work with, do you have like a percentage breakdown or just an estimation of kind of how much of it's like product companies or I don't know, maybe mm -hmm. even tech or software or whatever? Yes. Yeah, so the way we think about it is the type of truck that the freight has to go on. So you have refrigerated trucks, right, that are taking temperature controlled products, which could be anything from prescription medications to ice cream. There's lots of things that have to be temperature controlled. Then you have just dry vans. So when you think about a tractor trailer, that's typically what you think about. Going down the road in a big rig with a trailer on the back that's just crammed with pallets of stuff. And then you have flatbeds and specialized trailers. So flatbeds are the ones that don't have walls. So that's what a tank would go on or Bradley armored fighting vehicle or something like that. We do 40% of our business is temperature controlled and about 20% of it is dry van. So just regular freight clothing, stuff like that, that just goes in a dry van. And then the rest is made up of flatbed specialized freight and something new that's happening in our industry a lot more, which is called power only. So our industry is changing dramatically because of some new regulations that the federal government has put in place around hours of service for drivers, how many hours they're allowed to be on the road. So what a lot of companies are moving to now, and it's creating sort of a seismic shift in our industry, is they're moving to where they have trailers on sites that they're loading at their own pace. And then a driver comes in with just the truck part, right? Just the cab and hooks up to that trailer and takes off. Because traditionally what would happen is the driver would come in pulling a trailer, would back up to a dock and would sit there for hours while the truck was loading. And he just, he or she would just sit there and read a book or take a nap. Well, they can't really do that anymore because the way the regulations have changed. So they just, the way that everyone's doing it now is they just drive in with their own tractor, hook up to a trailer and pull it out and go. And that way they can drive more hours and get to their destination faster. I mean, holy smokes, even you just talking about, I didn't even think about <laughs> refrigerated versus non-refrigerated and dealing with that. For instance, like I'm in Jacksonville, Florida, which is a big like hub for shipping containers. Cause I know there's some truckers that I'll see that they basically just take a container from, you know, the ship it looks like and just places it on there. Is that what we're talking about? That's a basically a rolling chassis. And so this gets, I mean, I know way more about trucks than I ever wanted to. Trust me. And it's not very interesting, but you turn into a real truck nerd. You're driving down the road and you're like, Oh, what kind of truck is that? What are they hauling? I wonder. And so what happens there is those shipping containers are the right length that they can just crane them off the boat and onto a chassis, basically like wheels and a frame. And then the driver can just drive that to the destination. And so that's also another part of it. That's called drayage. That's just the term that we use in the industry because they're just taking it usually short distances. But those can also travel cross country. And they do the same thing with rail cars because rail cars are the same as shipping containers. They're the same sizes. So yes, that's a whole nother slice of the industry that you can get into. But yeah, Jacksonville is really a popular area for that. I'm going to jump to the beginning in a minute because it sounds yes. like <laughs> you know a lot more than you wanted to know about this. <laughs> before yeah. we move on to that, I'm glad you're able to catch up and see those old group calls and those are definitely helping. Yeah, and probably the most helpful one has been with a gal that did PR. Megan Bennett. Yes, yes. 
Like I listened to that whole thing with all the people's questions and her ideas. And I like how, you know, you got her to tell more stories than just the regular interview. Yeah, well, I appreciate you being a Patreon. Uh, no worries, man. I, I came across the podcast a few weeks ago and I definitely uh, enjoy them. So uh, I wanted to at least show my commitment and at the amount that you, uh, it costs, I, I wanted to go for the highest tier. So yeah, well, I appreciate that. So were you just Googling like a looking for another podcast and yours popped up and I was like, let me check this out. And then, you know, I listened to one and I love how in depth and detail. The first one I listened to was the uh, mining key guy. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one to start off with. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm in the franchising, okay, right? So, perfect. well, I'm in a franchise. I definitely, uh, it definitely was a good one to start off. And um, I like the questions that you ask. You know, you hold them to numbers. And so I think I've listened to maybe 60 in the last three weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, so, you've been binging. As far as like episodes, what's been one of your favorite? The Meineke guy. The Meineke, yeah. You really did start <laughs> yeah. off with, I thought so too. Yeah. I've been telling yeah. everyone how great that one was. And, and and he's one of the main reasons I joined the Patreon too. I was like, man, I got to hear the end of his story. It took, <laughs> it took me a couple weeks, but uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, I got to hear the end of his story. So if you want to hear that episode with Charles Bonfiglio, go check out episode 165. Actually, I remember seeing an article, maybe it was like six months ago or something about an automated truck that drove cross country. I think it does it just on the interstate, but could you tell us what you think about automation and automated vehicles and how that's going to change your industry? It's totally necessary that we move toward autonomous vehicles because there is such a truck driver shortage in the United States. The average age of a truck driver in the United States is 61, I believe, because it's a lot of folks who are getting ready to retire. Nobody wants to be a long haul driver. It's, (laughs) I mean, it's a brutal life. You live in your truck, you shower in truck stops, you don't see your family. It's a really hard thing to recruit people into. And if we can get to the point where autonomous trucks exist, then we need fewer drivers. However, and this is always the big however, there are so many things that have to change from basic interstate travel regulations to the technology to even how the roads are painted, like how the road stripes are painted. It's going to take time and it's coming, but it's going to take time before we get there. And I've always said that the only way I would ever own trucks is if they were autonomous, because then you don't have to worry about hiring drivers and all those regulations. So it's definitely something that I look forward to. But the other consideration that a lot of people don't think about is if we have a trucking company that we work with, they don't turn their fleet over every couple of years. It's not like me, I get a new car on lease every three years, right? You don't do that when you have these incredibly expensive tractor trailers. The idea of introducing autonomous vehicles, not only are there regulatory and legal and transportation related issues, but you also have to think about these large trucking company fleets. They're not just going to turn around and say, oh, okay, well, it's 2022 now. This is legal. All the kinks have been worked out. Let's just change our whole fleet. It's going to happen over time. So I think that's going to, it's definitely going to change the industry, but it's going to happen more gradually than I think a lot of people from the outside assume that it could. I definitely agree with you. I'm just guessing, what are they like 15 years old on average or maybe not on average, but I could see a lifespan of that if, as long as they upkeep on it, you know, obviously it depends, but what? Yeah. Diesel engines will run for literally millions of miles if they are properly maintained. You just have to think about it in those terms. What will happen is as trucks fail, as the engines come to the end of their lifespan, they'll be replaced and they may add only new vehicles that are autonomous, but they're just, 
economically, financially, it doesn't make sense to wipe out an entire fleet and replace it in one fell swoop. So I think that's what we'll see. But like I said, we have to develop this technology and we have to develop the regulations around it because otherwise shipping is going to become so much more expensive over time because drivers know that there's a shortage and it's supply and demand. And so they demand higher pay as they should. There are fewer of them. So it's one of those factors in pricing of all consumer goods from food to electronics to everything that shipping transportation cost is a really important factor in how everything is priced and what we can afford especially as Americans and you know when we go into the store what we're going to be paying for things like I said earlier and you said earlier you know more about trucks than you ever wanted to know so <laughs> why don't we go ahead and reel it back to the beginning and find out how you were able to get into this company and you want to just reel it back to where you went to college and graduated and we'll just walk along chronologically if that's okay. Absolutely. So the first thing that I always like to tell people is my dad was a truck driver. When I was growing up, I saw him drive truck. He drove a tanker truck that delivered gas to gas stations. And I swore I would never have anything to do with it because it was <laughs> dirty and it was smelly. It was physically very hard on him. He's had to have both of his knees replaced because of climbing in and out of the truck for all those years. And so I always said, that is not something that I want anything to do with. So I went to, I was what you call a road scholar, not a Rhodes scholar but a Rhodes Scholar because I went to so many different colleges and universities. I started off at Ohio University because I majored in journalism. My undergraduate degree is actually in print journalism. And I did two years at OU and then I finished my last two years at Kent State University. My parents got divorced in the middle of my college career and it made a huge financial difference in my life, right? So the economics became very different. So I ended up going to Kent State and commuting to finish my last two years. And my last year of college, I knew that I didn't want to be a newspaper reporter. I thought that's what I wanted to be my whole life. But it turns out after some internships and some, you know, experiential learning that I knew that really wasn't it for me. I just didn't have the necessary passion for that. And so I was a little bit at loose ends going into my senior year of college. And I met some other students at Kent State who were in the journalism and business program, and they were starting a business. They wanted to start a web design and media marketing company. And this was in 2001 in Kent, Ohio, where nobody had websites yet, right? Mm -hmm. It was still the bleeding edge of that, at least for Kent. And so their idea was that they wanted to sell bars and restaurants on the idea of having websites where they could put up menus and talk about specials and they needed someone to do the copywriting for them. So that's what they originally brought me on for. They said, you know, you can write well and we need somebody who can do copywriting for these websites. But when they started taking me on meetings with the business owners, we all realized that because I was passionate about it, I thought that this was a really great idea that people could have information at their fingertips about restaurants. They realized I was really good at sales. I could talk to restaurant owners and managers and sell them on the value of having their own website, having some reviews out there. And I enjoyed that very much. I enjoyed that process. And then they figured out that I was the only one who could balance my checkbook. So they handed me the QuickBooks login and they said, okay, you're in charge of finance now. And it was this whole world that just opened up for me, this idea of business management, sales, entrepreneurship, 
my dad always had a side hustle when I was a kid. He did construction work too. So he was a truck driver and he did this construction work on the side. And he was always out there hustling, doing his own thing. And I think that rubbed off on me and it was exciting. And I realized that this is what I want to do. Business management, running a business, even sales. This is what I want to do with my life. I graduated from Kent State in 2002, and I was accepted to the Case Western Reserve University's Weatherhead School of Management, which is one of the best business programs in the country. And they don't normally take students directly out of undergrad. They like most of the students in their MBA program to have some real world experience. But because I had this business I was running, they made an exception. And it was really cool. And I spent one semester there because it's a super intense and incredibly expensive program. This is something that I encourage all college students to do. I did the ROI. If I'm spending, and I had a half tuition scholarship too, but if I'm spending tens of thousands of dollars a year to get an MBA, and when I graduate, what I want to do is either work in marketing or in a nonprofit, which is what I was intending to do, I'm never going to make this money back. I'm not going to go work for McKinsey. I'm not going to be in finance, which is what a lot of my fellow students were going to do. Didn't make any sense to me at all. So I transferred to a small school in Canton, Ohio, Malone University. It was Malone College then. They've gotten fancy since I graduated. And uh, because you've been donating so much, <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> they call it off a lot. So does Kent State, <laughs> no. And I got my MBA there and I did it at night. So I was working full time doing retail management, which was a heck of an experience. And I was getting my MBA at night. And I think that is honestly the best way to do it. Anyone who talks to me about getting their MBA, I always tell them if you can swing it, work and do it at the same time because. The two experiences will inform each other so much because I was able to take day-to-day -day challenges out of this job. I was managing a jewelry store in Canton. It was family owned, not my family, but a family owned it. And I was 23, 24 years old managing this store where most of the, well, all of the employees were older than I was. Most of them were twice my age, which was an education in and of itself. But I could take those real world challenges and I could go to my classes at night and say, hey, what's the theory behind this? What's the best practice? What are the case studies that will help me understand how to solve these problems and shorten my learning curve? And then I was able to take the coursework that I was doing and take it right back into the store and really apply that immediately. So it was a great experience for me. Tough, working 60 hours a week and going to school at night, but totally worth it. And then I moved to Cincinnati after I finished my MBA. I moved down to Cincinnati and started to work for nonprofit down here in a development capacity, which is sales without commission. That's how I always talk about it. Nonprofit development, you're doing all the same work that you would do in a sales job. You're just making terrible money while you're doing it <laughs> because you, you feel passionate about the mission. And after that, I moved here because I met Tony, who is my business partner now. And I thought, what the heck, what's the worst thing that could happen moving out of Canton, Ohio and into Cincinnati, a much bigger city, a lot more opportunity down here. After we'd been married about a year, about a year and a half, he came to me and he said, what do you think about starting this kind of business? He had been in logistics in the service. He's an army veteran and had worked for another logistics brokerage here locally and really wasn't going to move up there because he was too good at sales. And that's the trap that I think salespeople get caught in sometimes. If you're making exceptional money for yourself and for your company, it's really hard to make that decision to move into management because you're going to make less. Sales managers make less than their top salespeople. It's just the economics of that particular situation. 
so he said he wanted to open this business. And the thing we laugh about is that in his best year at his former employer, he made a lot of money because he was very good at it. And we have never again come close to that in the nine years that we've owned Legion together or separately. We've never come close to making the same kind of money that he made there. Some of our salespeople do, but we don't. And that's the great irony of being a business owner is that often you are not the highest paid employee at your company. We joke that we're about number six and seven on the totem pole when it comes to take home income as business owners. What year was it that we're talking about just so we keep on track on time? Yeah, 2009 is when we started Legion. Okay. And he was how old and you were how old? He was, let's see, I was 29. And so that would have made him 35. Okay. And can we just get an idea? I know you said a lot of money, like I have no <laughs> idea what that means necessarily of like what sure. he was making before y'all decided to start the company. He made $650,000 his best year there. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's a lot of money no matter where you live, especially <laughs> yeah. though in the Midwest. I mean, right. that's crazy money. And what it did was it allowed us to have money saved to start Legion. So we were very lucky in that respect that we had money stashed. And I think any business owner will tell you, you never have enough. You always think you do, but you never do. It got real squeaky for a while money got real tight. And to sort of talk about the process of how we decided to start Legion, Tony obviously had experience in this industry. He had ideas about tech and about customer service and about carrier relationships that he felt that he could improve upon the way that his previous employer was doing things. I came to it from the perspective of, number one, I can learn any industry. You know, I've sold everything from makeup to charitable donations to jewelry. I can figure it out. I'm smart. But I also was very, very specific when I talked to him about it. And I said, okay, I want to create a place to work where our future employees, because obviously we didn't have any in the beginning, but where our future employees would be excited to come to work every day. And we would have a culture where folks would want to stay with us, you know, we'd have good retention, but where we could all be ourselves on a daily basis. I've been real clear with myself since the beginning of my professional career that I am not cut out for a super corporate role. I could not go to a place like Procter & Gamble or GE, sort of the two big corporations here in Cincinnati, and fit into a corporate mold. I'm just too much myself, and I know that. And so I am interested in creating a place where Folks who are a little bit quirky, folks who are a little bit outside of what the norms of corporate employment would be, could feel comfortable and be successful. Also, number three, that you like the trucking company thanks to your dad, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, <laughs> I believed, and this is important because I teach sales too, right? So I teach at the University of Cincinnati. And what I tell my students is only ever sell something that you believe in deeply. When I was selling makeup, I struggled every single day because that was just not something that I believed in deeply. Like I wear makeup, right? But I wear makeup from the drugstore. So for me to ask somebody else to pay $15 for a tube of mascara that I felt like I could get equally good product for $3 at the drugstore was a very difficult sale for me. There was cognitive dissonance in my life at that point, And it made it very difficult for me to wake up every morning and face what I had to do. I told my students, don't do that. It'll eat your soul. So for me, believing firmly that what we were doing at Legion was providing value and was necessary to our customers was mission critical. And I do believe that. I believe that our customers need us to help get product to market. And that's what keeps the economy 
moving in the United States. So it was easy for me to make that particular leap and also to encourage other people to come here and sell what we're selling. Because if I'm going to hire folks to come in and sell our services, I better believe in them because I'm asking people to dedicate their working life to selling Legion's products and services. And that's a big ask. Definitely. At least starting off, it sounded like at least y'all had some money saved up <laughs> to get it started, right? Yes. If you don't mind, why don't you walk us through the first couple of months before you even started it? And then that first six months to a year, because to me, that's always interesting and making sure if someone wanted to start a company, it's a different mindset once you start owning your own company, even though you were working at other ones. Yes, I was at that point, I had quit selling makeup and was sort of trying to figure out what my next move was because Tony was making such exceptionally good money. I had some freedom, right? That's a huge privilege to be able to say, okay, I'm going to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. Tony, when he left his previous employer, had to take a year off. He had to sit out 12 months of a non-compete. And we had to plan for that too. How are we going to cover the mortgage payments and all that with him sitting out a year? We could start the framework of setting up a business, but we couldn't start actually doing business. So we spent about six months being just bored stupid because it's really hard when you're young and we didn't have our daughter at that point and we're not great at relaxing or at least we certainly weren't then. I've gotten better at it as I've gotten older. I'm not sure he has. So it was really difficult for us. Eventually what happened is we went back to his previous employer and we said, look, here are some services that you guys don't offer right now less than truckload shipping when you just have one pallet of stuff to move across the country. They didn't do that at that time. We said, can we just work in this sphere, in this bubble and not get in your lane, but just stay over here for the rest of his non-compete? And they said, sure. Yeah, you guys can do that, which was cool that they said that. Tony still wasn't allowed to work in the company though. I could start the company, but he wasn't allowed to work in it. So he went and got a job with the census. So that was in 2009 when the 2010 census work was starting. So he went door to door asking people how many folks lived in their house and all of that. So he was driving all over Kentucky, going to weird places and doing census work just to keep himself occupied and also to keep him out of the business because we wanted to very clearly honor the terms of his non-compete. I think that you need to do that in order to be an ethical business owner. You can't get around it. He wasn't actually able to join us until June of 2010. And by that point, the company was running, but we were certainly not profitable. We were still paying our mortgage and everything out of our own savings. And at that point too, my family had moved in with us. My mom and her partner had both retired from their jobs and both of them had come down to join us in the company. So we were all living in the same house. And then around the same time Tony was able to join us, my brother was supposed to go on a deployment with the National Guard and they canceled it at the last minute. He'd given up his job, he'd given up his apartment. He showed up at the in-processing center and they said, never mind, which happens sometimes. So we said, just come stay with us until they find you another deployment. And they never did. We finally just gave him a computer and a phone and said, well, you work for us now. So there were five adults living in the same house, working in the business, just burning cash. And there's not a lot of overhead in our business, but you have to pay your carriers faster than your customers pay you. So the big cash outlay for us is payables. We would stop selling every week. We'd stop covering freight every week when we knew that we'd reached the limit of what was in our checking account. So, okay, we've got $10,000 to pay carriers this week. We can take that much freight. And when that much freight is taken, okay, we have to stop. Can you just carriers and customers distinguish that? Sure. So customers are the watermelon farmers and carriers are the truck drivers who are moving the freight. Okay. So yeah, we get paid by the watermelon farmers in 30 days, but we have to pay the truck drivers in 17. 
So you've got 13 days of float that you have to cover there. So we were always acutely aware of how much money we had to float before we ran out. And that was the limiting factor on our growth. And about that same time, so five adults living in the house, everybody working in the business, we're not making any money. I found out I was pregnant. Surprise. Uh, <laughs> that was not an intentional move. Because <laughs> in the first 18 months of a business, is not really an ideal time to get pregnant. And also, this was before the Affordable Care Act. So before insurance plans were required to have maternity coverage. So I also found out at the same time that I didn't have maternity coverage on my health insurance. So I was going to have to pay cash to have this baby, which is a very expensive proposition. And how much is that for someone who has no idea like me? <laughs> I mean, just the delivery alone, just the delivery, not any of the prenatal visits or anything else is about twelve to $15,000 for a normal, easy delivery, not a C-section, not anything else. So yeah, 12 to 15 grand. The nice thing is hospital systems will usually allow you to pay cash upfront, like do a payment plan and will charge you a much more discounted rate because they don't have to submit it to your insurance. So I was able to have my kid for about three grand because they had this plan, but $3,000 is still a lot of money to yeah. come up with. And that's just that part. Yeah, just that part. So it was interesting. I always tell people that the day that we went into the hospital, I did not have a healthy pregnancy, probably because I was trying to get a business to profitability and I was chained to my desk all day, every day. I used to take naps under my desk during the day because pregnancy it exhausts you. And so I would- That's why y'all got divorced. He chained you to your desk, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, that's had something to do with it for sure. Not an ideal situation to put your marriage through. Certainly. We got to the hospital on Thursday night to start being induced to have our daughter. Friday morning, it was time to move into labor and delivery and start the actual labor process. And I checked our bank account. I got on my phone and I checked our bank account. And we had $67 in our checking account. It was everything we had left from all of the savings that we had saved from the time we both quit working to start Legion. And there is no greater motivator to become profitable than bringing home a child into a house where five adults are living and between you, you all have $67 to get through. I had my daughter on Friday night, came home Sunday morning from the hospital. Monday morning, I was back at my desk. So I put Catherine in like a baby Bjorn holder and sat down and started making phone calls. And we all did. It was the joke was in the office then if she was upset, whoever wasn't on the phone had to take care of her. And it was an incredible strain physically for me, emotionally, and then just financially and emotionally for everybody else in the family too. It was one of those moments. It's like, well, we're either going to make it or we're going to be homeless. Appreciate you uh, becoming a Patreon member. Yeah, no problem, man. So what inspired you to become one? There was some content specifically, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy over at uh, Meineke, I was just like, I had to listen to the end of it. So it was, it was a good hook. It is so funny that you said that because when I literally just got done editing, the guy said the exact same thing. Really? Yeah, I kept thinking that story was so good. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know if you thought the same thing, obviously. The guy, as you can just tell, he's a grinder, you know, and you want to root for a guy like that. And where was all the money going? Because even when you said his last year, he made 600K. I understand that you weren't even able to work for a year. So obviously that mm -hmm. sucks. And you obviously putting money into the company. But I imagine the years before that, he made some good money too. So did you ever look back and just get an idea of where all the cash seemed like it went? <laughs> so we did just the smartest thing you can possibly do when you're about ready to start a business. 
we built a brand new house, a right. brand new, enormous house and put 20% down on it and had this, our mortgage payment was $3,600 a month. That's why your family came to live with you. Right. Exactly. Like Wait, we had the I room. still come up there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it was one of those things like just starting off like, okay, $3,600 a month is going out the door just for the mortgage. And then you've got all the maintenance on it. And so a lot of our money went into, you know, the deposit on the house, right. Putting the 20% down and then mortgage payments every month. And, you know, we had to buy software. The overheads for our business are pretty low, but if you're operating at a loss in the beginning and you're just burning cash, we had about $150,000 completely set aside and saved before we started the business. And then we had our retirement accounts, which were not extensive. And we got through all of it and liquidated retirement accounts and everything. And it has taken us probably until about last year, honestly, to get our retirement accounts back to where they even were nine years ago when we started the business. It was life. It was having a baby. It was having an expensive house. If I had it to do over, yeah, I'd have done that differently. But we didn't know when we built the house or at least started building the house that we were going to do this. This is one of those things. Building a house takes about six months and that's an evolution that we were going through is trying to figure out, okay, we want to do this. We want to start this business. But yeah, we moved into the house and two weeks later, Tony quit his job order to start the business. It was like, okay, here we go. Well, he already knew that he was going to do that though, right? I mean, was it, or no, when he mm -hmm. decided to quit? And I didn't know how much like resentment was building up when he wanted to quit. It probably took him, we had talked about it sort of off and on, but then I think he probably knew for about three months that he was going to. It was just when is the right time and there never is a right time. So it was finally like, all right, let's just pull this bandaid off. Let's just make all of the life transitions we can at the same time. I'm glad you said something about like if you had a do-over, mm -hmm. what you would do. So what advice would you give now if you're starting off then in that same situation? I mean, I think the most important thing that you can do if you want to start your own business is to get your personal expenses as low as possible to really get yourself adjusted to the idea of not making money because you will not make money. You will not. And it could be for us, it was about 18 months before we were profitable enough to start taking money out. Cause this is the other thing in order to take more business, right? We talked about this receivables versus payables conflict that we were always in. We kept taking all of our profit and putting it back into the company so that we could take more freight, right? So we had more money to pay carriers. So we were not taking profit out of the company to pay ourselves because we wanted to be able to grow and to take on more freight. So we made a conscious decision that way. All right, reinvest, reinvest, reinvest so that we can pay our carriers so that when we ask that question every week, okay, how much freight can we take? How much can we pay for our drivers? The answer got bigger week by week by week. And so we were trying to do that too. And I think the mistake that a lot of business owners make in the beginning is they think, okay, well, I'll just take the profits out, but then you're hamstringing your growth. You're throttling your own growth. So plan on not making any money and plan on reinvesting that money through your first year, 18 months, 24 months, maybe longer, depending on what your overheads look like and what your profit margins are in your business to get yourself to the point where you can comfortably take an income and the company can continue to thrive because you don't want to cash strap your business in order to support your lifestyle. That's a huge mistake. So how were you able to turn things around after a pregnancy? You said you're back in there whipping everyone, making calls. What was going on? Yes. So it was really about closing major accounts. So we had lots of small accounts, 
And then in the couple of months leading up to Catherine's birth, our daughter's birth, we had started closing some bigger customers with more regular freight, better margins. So it was really continuing that process or stuffing the pipeline and then closing and executing on those deals as quickly as we could and then establishing our reputation so that they gave us more business. Our industry is one of those ones where people move hundreds of loads a week. In some of our larger customers, they move hundreds of loads of freight a week. We want to capture as much of that as we can. You do that by starting off moving one or two loads a week for them, building up your reputation and them sending you more. So continuing to grow within that. I stepped away from selling pretty soon after Catherine was born because I just couldn't do it because I was also the marketing department, human resources, and I was our entire accounting department. Everything that got processed through any of those three departments fell to me. That was a conscious decision that I had to make, that I can't do all of this and sell, like handle night feedings, (laughs) raise a kid. Yeah, I've never done (laughs) night feedings, so I can't relate there. But so those early trucks, like how much money would you make on like, say, one of those truck early deals? So we have an idea of how much money you'd get for that. Sure. So our margin started off about 11% gross margin. If we rounded down to 10, if customer paid us $1,000, we were paying the truck 900. You're just getting started. You pay a little bit more because drivers don't know you. You're not established. You don't have credit. So you have to pay a premium for people to be willing to work with you. You figure 90% of every dollar that you're bringing in, 90 cents of every dollar is going right back out the door. And so it is incremental growth at that point, incremental profitability. Where we are now, industry standard is about 14% gross profit margin. We're at about 16 or 17% on an average year. As we've grown and established ourselves, we've started to do better with that. But in the beginning, it is very much money's going out as fast. And some drivers, in order to work with us, wanted to be paid cash up front. As soon as that load delivers, I want half of it before I pick it up. And I want half of it as soon as it delivers because you have no credit rating. How do I know you're going to pay me? Yeah. And so that's even a quicker turnaround on mm-hmm. the on, so yes. 30 days instead of 17, like half of it and the other. Yes. Okay. Wow. All right. So we get an idea of the small margins at first. And so let's talk about how we got to the margins you're at today. But mm-hmm. before, I guess let's take it. I don't know if we're talking year two, year three, like let's talk about the continued growth and what happened. So it really was explosive then. So in 2011, we did about $3.4 million in sales. So the year my daughter was born, we did about $3.4 million in sales, which is great. I mean, you know, it was 18 months in. 2012, we did $12 million. So just a huge spike. And then the year after that, we did, I believe, 15, and then we jumped right up to 25. So just leaps and bounds. And that was just a function of closing bigger customers and then adding employees. As the sales increased, we were able to add more salespeople. They were able to sell more, grow, 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 grow. So those were our Inc. 500 years, as I refer to them. So it was just hockey stick growth. And that was not something I ever anticipated. And we made some rookie mistakes as far as when companies grow like that. I think there are very common mistakes that most of them make. We hired too many people. We thought that that hockey stick growth was going to continue forever. At our peak, we had 54 employees. And we were doing about 25 million in sales. And a good marker for us in our industry is at least $750,000 in top line revenue for every employee that you have. And we were well below that number. So it makes it very hard to be profitable. So we were just top heavy with employees. Through 2015 and 2016, we had to make a lot of hard decisions about how we were going to staff. And we had to do some layoffs and we had to do some reductions because we just had too many people. 
and we got ourselves to the point where we are now where we're doing a million dollars in sales for every employee we have, which is the sweet spot. It's where we want to be. Yeah. What were the sales employees counts in like 15, 16? How do you mean? Oh, well, you're saying you did up to 25 million in 2014, yes. right? And at 54 employees and that you had to do some layoffs. So can you just tell us a little bit more about that as far as the sales? Did they go down? Sure. No, our sales have always stayed. We got that $25 million level and then we were there in 15 and 16. Last year, we did about 30. Okay. So it's been growth, but slow, 10% a year maybe, or a little less. That's where we've been as far as growth. Our layoffs came with support staff. You know, we keep salespeople, they're profit centers. As long as they're producing, you want to keep your salespeople. But the layoffs came in our HR staff for recruiting. Our layoffs came from marketing staff that we had. And just really trying to find as many efficiencies as we could within our software as we developed it and paring down the time that it took people to do their essential functions. So if we can shave a minute off of every invoice that somebody processes, that's 12,000 minutes a year. That's significant just from a one minute savings on one task that we do. And that's really how we look at things as a company is, okay, this is the process. How do we make it more efficient? Is there friction in the system that we can remove? to make tasks flow more smoothly or information or data more available so that we can make better decisions or people can get the information that they need more quickly. And that has always been Tony's and my driving force is efficiency, systemization, processes, and how do we become just this well-oiled machine where information and tasks just flow as smoothly as possible. And I would encourage everybody to do that. The very first, you asked about some of the tools in the questionnaire that you sent me. The very first book that I ever read that sort of blew my mind, and I'm going to forget the name of it now. Shoot. It's all about systemization, the E-Myth. Yes, which I'm sure other people on the podcast have mentioned before. And E-Myth is this book that was written by a gentleman. And it's not, I wouldn't say it's a well-written book necessarily. It's not a fascinating read. It's kind of cheesy in the way that it's put together, but it absolutely blew my mind because the first premise that he brings forth is look at McDonald's, feel how you want about their food, but look at McDonald's. You can go into a McDonald's in Kansas City or a McDonald's in Jersey City, and you're going to get the exact same product. Your Big Mac is going to be exactly the same. It's going to taste the same in both those places. And the people building that Big Mac are minimum wage workers without specialized training. And why is that? It's because of the systemization behind how they do everything. That's how they're able to provide consistent product whenever you walk in there and a consistent experience. And I was like, holy crap, how do we do this? How do we apply this concept of systemization to our industry so that when a customer comes in contact with Legion Logistics, they're getting a consistent experience and we can get people trained up as quickly as possible in order to provide them that. So we can take our training process from six months to three so that people can become profitable in three months instead of six, which saves us X amount of payroll for every single individual that we bring on board. And that to me was a major shift in the way that we thought about how the business was designed and how it flows. And that I think is a recommendation I make to everybody who's starting a business. Read that book, figure out how to put systems in place from day one and your business will be 
more profitable and more successful much more quickly. Yeah. And that's the uh, E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. Yes. You were talking about friction there for a second, so I don't want to miss the fun part of the marriage and how that... (laughs) Yes. When that occurred and walk us through that fun memory lane. Sure. Absolutely. So in 2012, we moved the business out of the house. Right around the time my daughter turned one, we moved into our offices. Now, we had eight employees coming to the house every day at that point. Okay, yeah, you had all the people there. Wow, (laughs) okay, yeah. Everyone living there, eight employees showing up every day. Like, I'd be making spaghetti sauce, wearing the baby at night, waving bye to everybody, saying, see you in the morning. So no separation between work and personal life. No balance, no anything. It was work 24-7. So we had outgrown the house, and we felt comfortable taking on space. That meant that we had to get a nanny. We had to do all these things. I was working about 7.30 to 2.30 every day. I'm a morning person, so I'd rather do that. And then I would go home at 2.30 and take over caring for Catherine. And moving out of the house, being here in the office, it provided some relief from the total takeover of our lives that Legion had done. But at that point, Tony and I had reached a stage where all we talked about was either Catherine or the business. It was it. We had sort of obliterated our marriage, our relationship outside of the business. And this strain of having a baby, trying to get profitable, trying to manage through that had just really eaten the center out of our marriage. And in order to make it work, in order for us to stay married, one of us was going to have to take a step back. One of us was going to have to take a step out of the business and start really focusing on the relationship. And we're both incredibly driven, ambitious people, and neither of us wanted to do that. We loved Legion too much. We just made that decision. This isn't working. We don't have a marriage anymore. We have a great business partnership. We balance each other incredibly well inside the business, but it was just too much to ask of our relationship at that point. And I admire so much people who can work together and stay married and erect those walls between the two. But for us, it was really difficult to come into work every day and not be PO'd at the person who hadn't emptied the dishwasher and not bring that into a meeting and then go home at night and shut off the conversation about our receivables and have a conversation about normal adult things that people talk about when they're married. And so we reached that decision at the end of 2012 and we both knew that we didn't want to blow up our lives. We didn't want to blow up Legion. We didn't want to blow up Catherine's life. And so it was a very... As Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin called it, it was a very conscious uncoupling. We used the same divorce attorney. We showed up at her office with a spreadsheet and we said, look, this is how we want everything divided up. Like, this is what he's going to keep. This is what I'm going to keep. We want to make it really clear in the divorce decree that Legion is not part of the divorce. We are going to be business partners. And she looked at us like we were nuts and said that it was the easiest divorce she'd ever done because all she had to do was like draft it in legal language and then submit it to the judge. And after that had happened, after we had filed the divorce paperwork is when we told our employees that this is what was happening. Until that point, we had just continued play acting in the office every day. And I guess it gives you some insight into how much our relationship was about business and not personal, that we were able to do that in the office because nobody really had any clue what was going on. But we didn't want our employees to freak out. Their security was very important to us. And so it was very much a conscious decision. And then we took them in small groups and talked to them and said, hey, this is the situation. This is what's happening. Legion is not going anywhere. Please trust us that things will continue on. And nobody left. We said from that point forward, our mantra was, it's only weird if you make it weird. So we're going to continue on as though this isn't weird 
and we hope you will too. And yeah, it just became a non-issue. And Tony and I get along as well as any two business partners. And we have a really healthy relationship. My daughter told me two nights ago at the dinner table, she said, I'm so glad that you and daddy are still friends. And that to me was like, yes. Okay. My seven and a half year old recognizes that her father and I have a healthy relationship. And we would not have had that had we stayed married. It would not have been daddy and you are still friends. It would have been really difficult and ugly. Yeah. So do y'all get along much better now? Yeah, because, you know, we're not mad about the other stuff. I think that Tony and I, what brought us together was our shared ambition and drive. And that is something that still continues to bring us together and our mutual respect for each other and the skills that we bring to the table here at Legion. And I have a business coach and she asked me the other day, you know, who could you call at 3 a.m.? And Tony was one of my first answers. I know that I could call him at 3 a.m. if I had something going on and he would pick up the phone and he would help. For a booty call or for business? (laughs) Jeez, for business. (laughs) No, definitely not a booty call for sure. You're the only 3 a.m. calls I get. Yeah, no, no. This this would be like, well, you know, somebody's having a health crisis or I'm locked in someone's trunk. I don't know. So I would know that I could call him and he would help and vice versa. We are still each other's family. We just aren't married anymore. And so I think that's an important distinction. Yeah. I know you said you admired the people that who are married and work together. But it seems like yours might have been totally different as far as like the ambition that both of you had like versus maybe if I hired my wife or somebody else and like they ran a different department and weren't necessarily as ambitious about the company, but were still a helpful person. You know what I'm saying? But both of y'all having that drive, I could see why that was such a good partnership, like business wise still and why you'd want to keep that together. Absolutely. Yeah. Most of the people I know who own businesses together, they do, they stay in their own lanes. They have completely separate functions or one person is running the company and the other person is doing it like 30 hours a week or something. Yeah, absolutely. And again, everybody has to work out their own thing. Life is a rich tapestry. Everybody gets to work out their own situation. And I think this important thing for us as humans to remember is that everybody's going to make different choices. And as long as it's working and everybody's healthy, let's just let people do what they do. And it's one of those interesting things. My daughter just joined a Girl Scout troop. Her stepmom was the one who took her to the first meeting and then I took her to the second one. And the scout leader was like, oh yeah, Catherine's stepmom explained to me, you're very comprehensive and integrated family situation. <laughs> I thought, yeah, that's, that's a good way to explain that it. It's comprehensive and integrated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So that's it. That's who we are. So is she going to join Boy Scouts too or what? No, 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 no. <laughs> She's went to a meeting last night and I was really hoping she would learn like fire starting and bourbon distilling. And instead she's going to learn how to sew. It's fine. It's whatever she wants to do. But I was really hoping for something really adventurous. I'm sure she'll get into trucking later on in life, right? (laughs) Possibly. She says she wants to own the business, but she also says she wants to be a pirate. So I figure she'll figure it out at some point. Well, sounds good. We appreciate you sharing your story and your journey, kind of looking back on it. Is there any like last words of wisdom that you want to leave with us or anything that you think is really important for the first time entrepreneurs or ones that are struggling kind of like you were in that first year or two? So anything that you have for them? Oh, yeah. I would say it gets easier. It really does. My life now doesn't resemble in any way my life when I started the business. I don't work 70 hours a week anymore. Most of the time, there's peaks and valleys, but I have a lot more balance in my life than I used to. What I tell everybody, everybody, whether they're starting a business or thinking about it, is just keep your mind open to opportunity. Because 
so much of my life has just been like random encounters and chance and saying yes to different things starting from the time I was in college and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but this business opportunity came in front of me and I said, sure, I'll write copy for your restaurant websites. Absolutely. And it turned into this whole other thing. And that's the philosophy that I've tried to live within since that time is just saying yes to different opportunities to see where it leads me. Take a coffee with somebody random and who knows where it might lead. Try different strategies and stay open to different philosophies within your business so that you can continue to grow. And it makes your life so much more interesting than just sort of having this rigid plan and following it in lockstep from the time you graduate high school until you retire. And I think too many people get trapped in this idea that they have to have it all figured out and no one does. But if you stay open and you let the universe sort of put opportunities in front of you, I think you'll have a great deal more success and definitely a lot more fun if you do it that way. Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you, Lacey, for sharing your story. And if someone want to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? Well, my email address is easy. It's Lacey at jointhelegion.com. And that's L-A-C-Y. All right. And the reason for the fearless leader title? <laughs> So we all have weird titles here. I believe in calling it like it is, right? Yeah. So my salespeople are called problem solvers because that's what they do. They solve problems for our customers. And my accountants are called number crunchers. And so Tony and I in the company, I am always right out in the front making the announcements, be in the face of the company, guiding people through if we have a difficult situation because that's who I am. I'm of the two of us, the more sort of empathetic people facing person. And Tony is our freight guru. That's what he knows. It's in his bones. The fearless leader title is just, and also it's aspirational for me. I need to be the one out in front being bold, making decisions and leading the company in the direction that it needs to go. So it, it's both something I wear with pride and also something I aspire to. Yeah. And something to remind you of, you know, when you see it there and you think you're not acting that way, you're like, well, it's in my title and I put it everywhere else. So I better act that way. Better do it. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again for doing the interview. We really appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you, Austin. All right. Still there? Yes. Cool. So how do you think it went? I think it went okay. How do you think it went? You thought it went okay. I thought it went really good. Damn. Okay, good. <laughs> You're a very good storyteller, so I see why I put you on there. So I appreciate it. Awesome. If you're looking for other female entrepreneurs we've interviewed, then here you go. Episode 5 with Sarah Shaw of Sarah Shaw Consulting. Episode 12 with Dory Clark of Reinventing You. Episode 15 with Jillian Hellman of Realty Mogul. Episode 28 with Krista Colson of C Agency. Episode 33 with Dana Korn Van Noy of Sonic Boom Wellness. Episode 43 with Robin Smith of We Go Look. Or episode 48 with Siobhan Moran of Energetic Solutions. Guess what I'm going to say next? Please share the podcast. If you want to keep hearing more episodes of Millionaire Interviews, then please take the time to share it with somebody else 